Well, it is a privilege and a pleasure to be with you this Lord's Day. We do not hide the fact that we are Presbyterian. And as the Apostle Paul said on one occasion, I would that all men were like as we are. Uh, <laughs> except without some of our chains, correct? Yeah. Oh, how's that? I will not repeat that joke for those of you who didn't hear it. Because <laughs> I have another joke in mind. I'm not much of a comic when it comes to preaching, but sometimes it helps break the ice. And I was thinking, what can I say uh, to help break the ice? So here's something I came up with. A Presbyterian and a Baptist walk into a bar. (laughs) That would be a joke, right? In and of itself, right? Uh, One bruised his shin and the other bruised his knee, so it must have been a low bar. How's that? (laughs) You were thinking something else, weren't you? This morning, I would invite you to look in two places in Scripture. We're going to do a mashup. Habakkuk 2.4, along with Hebrews 10.36-39. Those will be our sermon texts, and, uh, and we'll dive into those in just a moment. I want to draw your attention to Habakkuk 2.4, and I hope that by the end you will see that this text is so important that it is cited three times in the New Testament. Twice by the Apostle Paul and once by an anonymous pastor. It is cited in Galatians to demolish the false gospels of the legalists. It is cited in Romans to demonstrate how God turns unrighteous sinners into righteous saints. And finally, it is cited in Hebrews to both defend the gospel and to discourage or dissuade cross-bearing Christians from going back to yoke-bearing legalism. In each and every case that it's cited, Habakkuk 2.4 is used to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this text is so important that it even influenced the great reformer Martin Luther. According to Martin Luther's son, Luther said of Habakkuk 2.4, Before those words broke upon my mind, I hated God and was angry with him because not content with frightening us sinners by the law and by the miseries of life, he still further increased our torture by the gospel. But when by the spirit of God, I understood those words, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Then I felt born again like a new man. I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. Now, some of us could add our stories to Luther's story. And I pray that the same thing will happen to the rest of you who have not yet entered into this story of faith. I hope that by the end of this sermon, you will know that the righteous shall live by faith and that you will understand some of what it means for the righteous to live by faith. And so in light of all of these things, I want you to know that my purpose and goal today is to answer one massive question. And the question is, how shall we then live? As I mentioned, our sermon texts today are a mashup of Habakkuk 2.4 and Hebrews 10.36-39. And I encourage you to open your hearts and open your ears to hear the reading of God's holy word. Habakkuk 2.4. 
Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. For you have need of endurance. This is Hebrews 10. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while. And the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And this is the word of the Lord. I pray that God will add his blessings to the reading, the the preaching and the hearing of his word. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. So a little context for you. Where's Habakkuk coming from? And not just the Old Testament, but what is the context of Habakkuk's life? You have heard throughout your life that big things come in small packages. We also want to say that big truths come in small texts like Habakkuk 2.4. Here's the context. In the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk the prophet has been crying out to God because the wicked surround the righteous. And when he says the wicked surround the righteous, he's talking about Wicked Jewish people who are not faithful to God have surrounded righteous Jewish people who are faithful to God. They are the remnant, the minority. So Habakkuk the prophet cries out to God for help and God answers his prayer and shows him his plan to deal with this problem. And his plan is that he's going to raise up the Babylonians and send them into Judah and wipe out Jerusalem and take a whole lot of people away into captivity. He's also going to kill a lot of people along the way. When Habakkuk hears that this is God's plan to deal with the wicked who have surrounded the righteous, he goes back to God and he prays differently. And he says, I think you might have misunderstood what I was saying. You see, if you send the Babylonians, they are going to destroy us. We will die. In other words, he didn't agree with God's plan. And he wants God to come up with a different plan. So God answers that prayer and says to him that his plan is to judge rightly and fairly. That the wicked will die by his works, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And so God reveals to Habakkuk the gospel in a shadow form. He reveals to the prophet And assures him that through this act of judgment, God is going to triumph over the wicked. But he's also going to save all who live by faith. It's very important for us to mark this down because just as God judged the wicked nation by the Babylonians to accomplish a righteous purpose in Judah in the time of Habakkuk. You fast forward a few hundred years and you'll see that God is also going to use wicked men to accomplish his redemptive purpose in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ at Jerusalem. So you see how God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. He uses judgment to bring about deliverance for his people. But only the righteous who live by faith are able to see what God is doing and to grasp some of what God's plan is. 
Now we look around us and we see that there are many wicked people in the world and many wicked people in churches who are proud, whose souls are puffed up and not upright within them. But the righteous shall live by faith. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now we can say the righteous shall live by faith over and over again until we've all memorized that verse. But the question we must ask is, what does it mean? Who are the righteous who live by faith? Well, in the context of the Old Testament, the righteous who live by faith were first and foremost the prophet Habakkuk. He lived by faith when the wicked Jews surrounded him and surrounded the remnant. But we could also say that the righteous who lived by faith were the righteous Jews who were with him when they were surrounded by the Babylonians. They had to trust God against all circumstances, hope against hope. God will do the right thing. You fast forward to the New Testament. Who is the righteous who lives by faith? And first and foremost, we want to say it is the Lord Jesus Christ who lived by faith when wicked men surrounded him in the garden and surrounded him at the cross and even put him to death. The righteous who live by faith are also every Christian everywhere throughout all space time history who live by faith in Jesus Christ in the midst of a crooked and wicked generation. And, you know, that includes you. If it is that you live by faith, if you've put your trust in Christ, if you walk by faith and not by sight, the righteous who live by faith includes even you. But I want us to move to the New Testament now and see how this passage is used in the book of Hebrews. I mentioned earlier that Habakkuk 2.4 is cited in the New Testament three times. And if we want to know what an Old, an Old Testament passage really and truly means, we could go to commentaries and we could listen to good preaching concerning these things, or we could go to the scriptures and pay attention to what the apostles and prophets tell us these things mean. I want to encourage you, if you don't do so already, to make it a habit to read your Bible forward and backward. Read it front to back and then read it back to front again. And in this way, you'll see Scripture interpreting Scripture. And this is what's happening in the book of Hebrews 10, 37 to 39. The book of Hebrews was written by an anonymous pastor. You'll hear some people say, that they think Paul wrote it or that Apollos wrote it or there are other theories about who might have written it. But the book is anonymous for a reason. And one reason it's anonymous is because throughout the book, the author is highlighting the fact that this is the word of the Holy Spirit to the church of Jesus Christ. And so throughout the book, this anonymous pastor will say, the spirit says somewhere it is written. The spirit encourages this, that or the other. And so this is a word from the Holy Spirit, not the word that your friend down the street thought he heard from the Holy Spirit, but an actual word from the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit does is he lifts this passage out of Habakkuk 2 and brings it into this context to encourage the people of God to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ and to dissuade Jewish Christians from apostatizing. That is from backsliding and falling away from Christ and his church. 
He says, yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. That's God speaking to and about his people. Now, this anonymous pastor knows that his flock, the church under his care, has endured real hardships and they've experienced real suffering in their life. And he knows that this kind of hardship and difficulty has taken a toll on them. And if you go back and read in the context of Hebrews in chapter 10, you'll learn that they have been publicly shamed. They have been personally injured. They wonder if taking up the cross and following Jesus is worth it all. They think it might have been a mistake. They feel like the gospel is causing them more trouble than it's worth. It's certainly costing some of them more than they are willing to pay. They're trying to convince themselves that the gospel might not be enough, that it might not be all that important. They're trying to convince themselves that it would be okay to bring something else alongside the gospel to sort of water it down, dilute it, make it a little bit more uh, palatable and easy to deal with. They feel like they need something more, like they need something else, maybe something different. They just want to make a change, right? Some of you have heard those things and maybe you've thought or felt some of those things in your own life. The gospel will do that to you, right? Because it's so costly and it, it demands so much from us and demands so much out of us. And sometimes we realize once we're in, it's bigger on the inside. And then we'd say, wow, this is far more costly than than I thought it was going to be. I mean, I wanted to give Jesus a little bit of my life and a little bit of my time and a little bit of my treasure. But I didn't want to give him everything. I got to keep something for me, myself and I. Right. That's where the Hebrew Christians are. And they're coming up with all kinds of reasons for why this maneuver would be okay. So they've been telling this anonymous pastor and he's at least they've either told him directly or he picked it up on social media somewhere that they kind of missed the law and they missed the temple. They missed the priest. They missed the altar, the blood, the smells and the bells. They they missed those things. They preferred the concrete shadows and traditions and programs to what they're getting now, which is a lot of trouble. And they don't like the trouble. And so here's what some of them are thinking of doing. They're thinking of leaving Christ and leaving the cross and leaving the church and then going back to something that is actually more comfortable and less costly. When you read the letter, you find the anonymous pastor reminding them that once upon a time, they went boldly outside the camp and they gladly took up the cross of Christ But now, for some reason, it's all become too shameful and embarrassing for them. The cross has become too heavy and too messy for their pride. And as a result, they are seriously considering trading in the cross of Jesus Christ for a yoke of religion, a yoke of moralism, a yoke of slavery. They sound an awful lot like their forefathers who were delivered from Egypt by the power of God, outstretched hand and mighty arm. 
Now they're in the wilderness. And suddenly the experience in the wilderness of eating manna and drinking water and a little quail every now and again, enduring the hardships of the wilderness, suddenly that makes even slavery in Egypt look so much better. So that all they can think about is the meat and the vegetables that they left behind. They want those creature comforts. Only they haven't left Egypt. They've left something worse than Egypt. They've been delivered from sin and death and from the devil. And yet somehow in the midst of their trouble, they're saying life wasn't so bad before, was it? We didn't have to suffer. We didn't lose our property. We didn't deal with hardships. Why can't we just go back to where we started? Why can't we go back to where we were when we first heard the gospel? And so again, their attitude has changed. Their confidence is shaken. Their joy is fading. Why? Well, if you'd been with them and walking in their sandals and sitting around their tables and hearing their conversations, you would know that their world was falling apart. And I don't mean falling apart in some psycho babble sense. I mean like really falling apart on the inside and on the outside. Their world is falling apart. The Romans are about to come and destroy Jerusalem. The day was drawing nigh. The anonymous pastor reminds them of that. And so their situation is very much like Habakkuk's situation with the Babylonians. They're sitting ducks waiting on this enemy to come and wipe out their land and their people and their cities. And as a result, the pastor wants to shepherd them. And he knows that some of them are wavering between these two sides. And so like a good shepherd, here's what he does. He gets everyone's attention. And he writes a letter to them that they can chew on and meditate and reflect on. And in the context of that letter, he points everyone to Jesus. He points everyone to Jesus and he urges them to stick with Christ and to stay in his church with all their heart, no matter what happens. And he says things like this in the letter. Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. You have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what has been promised. For yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by his faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Now we can relate to these Hebrew Christians in some ways, can't we? Can any of you relate to them? You look at your own life and you know that you've all lost something for the sake of the gospel. You've all left behind some things, some people, some habits for the sake of the gospel. And maybe you're on the fence. Maybe that song, that punk rock song is playing through your head. Should I stay or should I go? Right? And then you get this letter from a pastor speaking by the Spirit who says, We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. 
I love this. I know that as parishioners, as, uh, as congregants in a church, you hear this one way, but as a pastor, I hear this passage a different way. And here's how I hear it. Is that this pastor is not ashamed to identify with his flock. He's not the one wavering. He's not the one doubting. He's not the one in fear, but they are. And what does he say? We. We are in this together. You and I are not alone. We walk by faith. We do not walk by sights and sounds and smells and bells. No, after all we've been through together, we know what it's like to live by faith. We know by experience that living by faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We have joined the communion of the saints who lived and died by faith and who now live again by faith. And like our forefathers in the faith, we acknowledge that we are strangers and exiles on the earth. We are seeking a true and better homeland. We are not thinking of all the places from which we have gone out. And we are not looking for an opportunity to return to what we left behind. No, we desire true and better things. A true and better country. A heavenly one. And therefore, in response to our faith, God is not ashamed to be called our God. For he has prepared for us a city. I imagine that in your life, things have not always played out the way you expected. Maybe your marriage hasn't played out the way you expected. Or your career. Or your family. Or your children. Your school. Your health. Your team. Your band. Or even your church. And I imagine that some of you, like me, are tempted to throw in the towel at times. I can even imagine that some of you imagine that your faith is too weak and too frail to even be counted as faith. And so what you do when you sing, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I venture a guess that some of you sang that with full conviction of faith. And others of you were singing that as a prayer. I hope this is true. I hope God makes it true. Right? Because we feel that our faith will fail. We feel that the tempter might prevail. We stand at a crossroads every moment of every day of our life, don't we? We stand at a crossroads just like Habakkuk did. Just like the Hebrew Christians were were doing. And just like Jesus did. 
We'll get to that in a moment. But I want you to think about your crossroads for a moment, not theirs. You've got real decisions to make, hard decisions to make in your life. And your decisions look like this. Just in the context of the book of Hebrews, your decisions look like this. You can throw away your confidence or you can tighten your grip on Christ. You can shrink back in shame or you can step forward in hope. You can waver in doubt or you can walk by faith. But before you decide, before you do anything else, echoing the anonymous pastor of the book of Hebrews, I want to say to you before you do anything else, you need to consider Jesus Christ one more time. In Hebrews chapter 12, the Spirit says through this anonymous pastor, look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith, who endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy that was set before him and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You need to consider Jesus. Who can who endured hostility from sinners against himself? Why? Why would you have me look to Jesus Christ crucified in the midst of my sorrows, in the midst of my doubts and fears? Why would you counsel me to look to Jesus? And the answer is given by the Spirit so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. There is a counterintuitive wisdom that comes with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And while the flesh would say that gazing upon Christ crucified and contemplating the sufferings of Christ and all that he endured at the hands of wicked men, while the flesh would say, no, that would be the most discouraging thing I could do. I can't bear to see that shame and that sorrow. I can't bear to enter into that despicable story. I've got my own grief and misery to deal with. The wisdom of the spirit is that in the midst of your sorrows, in the valley of the shadow of death, in the grip of darkness, that's the moment when you are called upon to look to Jesus. And not Jesus hanging on the cross, but Jesus, the victor over sin, the flesh and the devil. Who leaves those things in his wake. And sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It is in gazing upon the glory of Christ Jesus resurrected and ascended. That you find encouragement. It is in remembering that Christ is the glorified sovereign savior of his people. Seated on the throne of God. That you find encouragement and comfort in your time of need. We're reminded in Hebrews 12 that in all of our faith struggles, which are real, by the way, your faith struggles are very real. They're not made up and just in your head. But in all of our faith struggles, even though we've suffered, we have not yet suffered to the point of shedding our blood. Some of our brothers and sisters have. But we haven't. No one's holding a knife to our throats. No one's threatening our wives and children. No one is breaking into our homes and stealing our things. No one is running us out of our jobs and careers for our faith. 
No one is deterring us from gathering on the Lord's day for worship. At least not yet to all of those things. Not yet. And by the way, none of those would be reasons to turn back and fall away from Christ. How do we know that? We know that because the Hebrew Christians had far more reasons than we do to turn back. And yet they were dissuaded from turning back by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The anonymous pastor is saying to this church, the gospel is a much better reason to stay than any bad circumstance or bad problem is to go. So in all of your faith struggles, real though they might be, you've not yet suffered to the point of shedding blood. But even if you do suffer to the point of shedding blood, that is not an excuse to abandon Christ, to fall away from the cross, to leave the people of God. But there is someone who did suffer to the point of shedding his blood. And he also walked by faith, and that is Jesus Christ. Which is why the writer of this letter tells us, fix your eyes on Jesus. Look to Jesus again. I've been a Christian minister long enough to know some of the ups and downs of life in Christ. And to feel some of the joys and sorrows and the fears and the comforts of life in Christ and life under the cross. And like some of you, I know what it's like to stand in the shadow of a black gate with dust and ashes swirling all around you and wondering, is this the moment when we should give up? Is this the time when we should turn away? Is this the time when we say, no more, I can't go any farther? I know what it's like to need to hear the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ saying something like this. Hold your ground. Hold your ground, sons and brothers. I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship. But it is not this day. An hour of wolves and shattered shields when the age of men comes crashing down. But it is not this day. This day we fight. By all that you hold dear on this good earth, I bid you stand and walk by faith. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus. Lift our drooping hands, strengthen our weakened knees and make straight paths for our feet so that what is lame may not be broken, but rather healed. The world is shaking. It's an unstable place. It was never meant to be stable. It was never meant to be permanent in its current state. God is shaking the world. He shook Habakkuk's world and the righteous shall live by faith. He shook the world of the Jewish Christians and the righteous shall live by faith. He's shaking our world even now and the righteous shall still live by faith. You do not shrink back in fear. They do not sneak around in shame. We do not wallow in self-pity. 
They do not shy away from their brothers and sisters. You do not slip away from Christ and his church. We do not shun the cross. By faith, our story is tied to the story of Jesus Christ. So take comfort in this knowledge that your sorrows and your struggles and your sufferings are woven into the sorrows, struggles and sufferings of Jesus. Your wounds are his wounds. Your weakness is his weakness. Your heartache is his heartache. Why? Because he sympathizes with you. He knows what it's like to be where you are. He knows how that feels. He can feel what you feel even in this moment. He sympathizes with us in all these things. Because he has been where we are. And in much worse places than we've ever been. The anonymous pastor tells us that Jesus is able to help us and give us grace in our time of need. Because he is the true and better righteous one who lives by his faithfulness. So that we who live by faith in him might become the righteousness of God. Now with your permission I'd like to say one little word about faith. And then we'll wrap up. The righteous shall live by faith does not mean your faith is only counted as righteousness if it is big and strong faith. Your faith is counted as righteousness even when it is little and weak faith. I'm not sure if you heard me. So I want to say it this way. That the smallest faith is big enough to save. And the biggest faith is still small enough to struggle. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which is used in in my tradition, a Reformed document, which you would benefit from. I believe there's a Baptist Confession, which is similar. Uh, Probably says something similar to this. Might encourage you. The grace of faith. By the way, this is where we get saving faith. The grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word by which also and by the administration of the sacraments, the baptism and the Lord's Supper and prayer, this faith is increased and strengthened. This faith is different in degrees, weak or strong. It may often and many ways be assailed and weakened, but ultimately gets the victory. Growing up in many to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and the finisher of our faith. All that to say that whether your faith is great, big, Or little bitty. Any faith you have that is in Christ. Is faith enough to save. 
Because the power of saving faith is not in the person who possesses the faith. The power of saving faith is in the person who saves. And that is Jesus. Now, Sometimes we hear stories about the faith of Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David. And we think to ourselves, wow, I wish I had faith like they did. We read Hebrews 11 in the text that we call the hall of faith. And we think to ourselves, wow, I wish my name were there. My name will never be there because I don't have the faith that they have. And if you think and feel that way, let me say to you that you have been misreading Hebrews 11. While you sit here, perhaps jealous of the faith of Abraham or Moses. From where they sit now, they look at you and they're jealous of your faith. That's what Hebrews 11 tells us. Because they were looking through a mist, looking through a dim glass. They were looking through hints and shadows. They didn't see all that you see. They didn't know all that you know. They're jealous of you because their faith was pointed in the right direction, but never landed on the right person. And your faith is rooted and grounded in the person of Jesus Christ. And so I have good news for you. The righteous shall live by faith. If you walk by faith, the faith in Jesus that you have, that you have received as a gift from God, is better than the faith that they had received. And if you live by faith in Jesus... Your name is on that list for when you read the passage again, you will see that you are in fact mentioned there as it is written. God has provided something better for us so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. The righteous shall live by faith and by faith in Christ alone. Let us pray together. Oh, grant, Almighty God, that as the corruption of our flesh ever leads us to pride and vain confidence, that we may be illuminated by your word so as to understand how great and how grievous is our poverty and thus be taught wholly to deny ourselves and so to present ourselves naked before you, that we may not hope for righteousness or for salvation from any other source than from your mercy in Christ alone nor seek any rest but only in Jesus alone. And may we cleave to you by the sacred and inviolable bond of faith that we may behold the glories of Christ, that we may boldly despise all those empty boastings by which the wicked exult over us, and that we may also cast ourselves down in true humility before you, so that we may be carried upwards above all heavens, And become partakers of that eternal life, which your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, has purchased for us by his own blood. It's in his name we always pray. Amen.